let's talk about cow poop. Hey everyone and welcome to the Cody Crow and Calvet podcast. Uh, today we're going to be talking about neonatal diarrhea or calf scours, one of my favorite topics. If you guys love this podcast, please leave me a review on the uh, iTunes or the podcast app. I w- would really appreciate you guys subscribe to the podcast and uh, also leave an honest review. Helps in the rankings, and I would appreciate it. If there's anybody who's a listener of the podcast but hasn't checked out any of my videos, I got some really great vlogs up right now. Head to my YouTube page, Cody Croman Calvet. Also give me a um, subscribe and uh, hit the notification bell and watch video and leave a comment, and I would really, really appreciate it. You can also find my stuff on Instagram, and on the Facebook as well. So right now, today in Cody world, it is a uh, it's calving time. I'm starting to put some calves on fluids, uh, IV fluids, and we'll talk about that and when to make those decisions. So I thought it was a very pertinent time for us to just talk about calf scours in general because I'm seeing it in practice and we'll go through it in detail. Uh, I was editing some video. I have a really amazing vlog coming up with, well, I hope coming up, with uh, Emerson and Neve, my kids, out on call uh, last weekend. Uh, I filmed what I thought was a very beautiful vlog, and I edited most of it, and my SD card corrupted, and I so far have lost all the footage. But I'm working diligently, so instead of editing video tonight, which takes up the majority of my evening time, once everybody in my family goes to bed, I thought I would rock out a little podcast for you guys. So I appreciate the listen. Uh, I know the podcast is quite sporadic. It's probably going to be sporadic for a while. Uh, My hope is to, to try to get one out once a week, but sometimes it doesn't happen. So, yeah, that's just what's going on. Okay, let's talk about scours. So, when it comes to calf scours, I think it's really important to just first of all talk about just general calf health first. So, what are everything we can do to set these babies up for success? And the the main pillar of setting a calf up for great health is colostrum, right? We want those calves to get circulating levels of antibodies, immunoglobulins uh, in their bloodstream through adequate colostrum management in order for them to be able to fight off all of the pathogens that cause all the different diseases, but in this case, scours, uh, until those calves can start mounting their own immune response to those pathogens uh, innately. So for those of you that don't know, calves are born without an immune system. They get all of their immunity to all the pathogens they're going to see from mom's colostrum, unlike humans, which 
are born with circulating antibodies. And that just really has to do with how the placenta attaches to the maternal bloodstream and the ability for antibodies to pass through that that placental junction. So in cows, it does not pass through very easily, those, those aminoglobulins. So this species relies very heavily on uh, passive transfer. So this passive transfer of aminoglobulins from mom's colostrum through their gut lining into their circulation, and that's what gives them their immune system um, right off the bat. So the general rule of thumb in beef calves is to get two liters of high-quality colostrum within the first four hours of life. Now, if a calf is born unassisted, for the most part, they're going to receive adequate levels of colostrum, and they're going to be okay. So for the most part, you just have to watch, make sure baby has sucked within the first four hours, and mom has enough uh, of a bag, enough milk, enough colostrum to provide that that high-quality colostrum to the baby, and we should be good to go. But there is a lot of circumstances that would dictate... Uh, us to intervene and provide supplemental colostrum. So if you look at the literature, it's pretty interesting. Uh, One third of beef calves, at least in this study of calves born in Alberta and Saskatchewan, one third fail to acquire optimal passive immunity. Uh, this is a very, very important thing, and this is likely due to delayed colostrum consumption. If uh, these one-third of calves do not get adequate colostrum, they have a much higher risk of pre-weaning morbidity, so getting sick, and also pre-weaning mortality. It's a, it's a very big risk factor for them to, to get sick or for them to die. And calves that do not have adequate colostrum consumption, they would also have a, a pretty significant uh, decrease in in their pre-weaning average daily gain, meaning they would have a lower weaning weight. So economically, it is extremely important for those calves to to get adequate colostrum by that four hours of age. Now, how do you ensure that those calves are are going to get enough colostrum? Um, one of the best tools in my mind to, to do is the, uh, suckle reflex test. Uh, so this is, this is one of the best ways to assess calf vigor, the, the ability for that calf to get up and, and get to nursing, uh, through, through this tool. And, and it's super simple. So you take a calf that is 10 minutes old and you put your fingers into its mouth and you you tickle the the roof of its mouth and if you have a strong reflex that means that the those calves are are very likely to get enough colostrum if it, they have a weak suckle reflex it in an unassisted calf then they have a very high risk of not getting enough colostrum. So a 78% chance in an unassisted calf with a weak suckle reflex for them not to get enough colostrum by four hours after birth. So that's with an unassisted calf. Within uh, an assisted calf, so like an easy pull, a calf that has a strong suckle reflex at 10 minutes of age has a... a, um, 
26% chance of not getting enough colostrum. So it's not wonderful, uh, those those easy pulls. There is still a chance, even with a strong suckle reflex, that they're not going to get enough colostrum. Those calves are, are likely going to be hypoxic, so low oxygen, because of that more difficult birth. That can potentially lead to an acidosis, and that can lead to central nervous system depression. Uh, and those calves are also just sore because of because of that pull. In calves that are uh, an easy pull, that have a weak suckle reflex, they are 94% uh, likely to not get enough colostrum. So very, very, very high chance for them to have failure of passive transfer. When it comes to a difficult pull, if a calf has a strong suckle reflex, it's about 50-50. So 49% of those calves will get enough colostrum if they have a strong suckle reflex. And 98% of them will not get enough colostrum if they have a weak suckle reflex. So as you can see now, uh, the, the, the suckle reflex is a very good tool so overall, if I'm managing a herd and determining whether or not I need to provide supplemental colostrum to a baby calf, uh, I'm going to, in, for the most part, leave unassisted calves alone unless there's an indication for me to, to determine their suckle reflex. So calves that are seemingly weak, calves that are born in a cold, calves that are born in a snowbank, uh, calves that just seem off, right? Those, those kind of dummy looking calves. I'm going to then do the, the suckle reflex assessment. And if they have a weak suckle reflex, I'm going to give them supplemental colostrum. With an easy pull, I'm going to use the assessment tool every time. I've got the, the calf in, the mom in. So it's really easy for me at 10 minutes of age to determine what the suckle reflex strength is. And if it is a strong suckle reflex in an easy pull, then I'm going to leave those calves alone, watch them, and they're probably going to get enough colostrum from mom. And if it's a weak suck reflex, I'm going to provide supplemental colostrum. And when it comes to a hard pull, based on the literature, regardless of if they have a strong suckle reflex or not, I'm just going to go ahead and give them supplemental colostrum. So when I get uh, called out to do a calving, it's typically a hard pull uh, or a C-section, but it's typically a hard pull because I got called out to do it, then I'm going to recommend supplemental colostrum to those babies. So that's you know a good way for us to tell how we're going to assess these these baby calves. And once again, remember how important that that colostrum is for those calves to get. That those calves that do not have a a um, a good amount of colostrum at birth, they are two point eight times more likely to to die than calves that do get enough colostrum. And those calves that have failure of passive transfer, they'll have a decrease in average daily gain of point two pounds per day. So that is very significant when we're talking about overall economics. When it comes to determining, you know, what type of colostrum we should be providing if we're going to do supplemental colostrum, uh, the very best source is that calf's mother, um, colostrum from your own herd. So those, those 
cows in your herd, those are always going to be the best donors because they are exposed to the pathogens that your herd is exposed to, and they're going to have IgG or antibodies that are specific for your your environment, specific to your individual herd. And mama is always best, right? Mama knows best. The... If you're going to use a donor cow within your own herd, um, remember that not all colostrum is created equal. So we want to choose colostrum donors from cows that are in their prime. So typically age three to age seven is when they have the highest concentrations of of IgG within their milk um, as a unit per volume. So heifers don't produce as good a quality of of colostrum and old cows don't produce as good of quality colostrum either. So just because the old 15-year-old swing bag has lots of milk and she's easy to milk out as a donor doesn't necessarily mean that she has the best quality. Uh, the other thing to also remember is that heavier milking breeds uh, typically have a more dilute colostrum. So, for example, a Holstein, right? We all know what a Holstein is. They're very high-producing uh, cows in terms of, of milk. Uh, but because their volume is so high, the overall concentration of IgG in their colostrum is actually quite low. Now, those big Holstein calves, they're able to fit more milk into their stomach, so they're able to to get away with that, right? Uh, Whereas if you try to put just two liters of dairy colostrum into a little... uh, 60 pound Angus calf, uh, they're not going to get enough. So the, you know, picking the right donor is very, very important. When we're storing colostrum from our herd, uh, we can store it in the freezer as long as it just goes through one freeze thaw cycle. So we don't want to freeze it, thaw it, freeze it, thaw it, freeze it, thaw it. Remember those IgG, those, those antibodies, they're proteins essentially. And if we freeze thaw proteins too many times, just think of like a steak, right? If you freeze thaw, freeze thaw a steak, you're going to degrade those proteins. So we can freeze it. There, it's good in a freezer for one year. Uh, we should just discard it after a year. And when we are thawing that colostrum, we want to be very gentle with it. So we want it to thaw in just warm water in the sink and and gradually increase that temperature. We don't want to put it into the microwave. Uh, we don't want to put it in boiling water uh, because that can denature the proteins. Think of the steak analogy again. Letting a steak thaw out on the countertop, the, the, the meat quality is quite a bit better. The protein quality is quite a bit better as opposed to if we run it through the microwave and we have brown spots and it loses more liquid because the proteins have degraded. So that's, you know, one consideration. Uh, the commercial colostrum products are also very good. These are from disease certified free herds. Uh, they are vaccinated for a variety of different diseases that, that we want to have antibodies for, and they do a really good job with packaging them. So in Canada, uh, I would say Saskatoon Colostrum Company is the, certainly the top of the, of the game when it comes to donor colostrum. Uh, there's lots of quality assurance in there, disease free. And I always feel very confident in using, using that product. 
the big no-no is buying dairy colostrum from a neighbor or buying colostrum um, from from beef cows from a neighbor. Uh, like I said, with dairy colostrum, that volume is really high, so the concentration of IgG is quite low. And then there's also the high potential for de- disease transmission, uh, specifically Yoni's disease, a um, lot more prevalent in our North American dairies than it is in the beef herds. So we can potentially be bringing organisms onto farm that can cause a big problem in the future. If the calf is quite small, uh, we can we can split those feedings over a couple of times. But remember, for every every hour we go over that four hour window, we're losing the ability for that calf to absorb those those IgGs, those antibodies. So as the calf ages, the ability for it to efficiently absorb those uh, those molecules in the gut decreases. So. For example, you would have a high rate of absorption in hours one through four, and after hour four, the gut starts to close down, and uh, those those immunoglobulins do not transfer as effectively through. Uh, they're still open to a small extent by 24 hours, but they have significantly closed in comparison to hour four, and uh, it is a lot harder for us to, to pass those antibodies through that gut wall. Uh, but you can split feed if necessary, if it's a small calf. Um, once again, like the 50-pound Angus calf, uh, certainly you might have to do two one-liter feedings within the first four hours, and that's okay. And then back to the colostrum products. Regardless of the brand that you use, one of the most important things to look for is on the bag. It'll say how many grams of IgG are available in that bag. So a total... Uh, colostrum replacement in a commercial product has 100 grams of IgG. So make sure you see that. That means that one bag should be adequate in most cases in order for us to provide a high level of, of IgG to those calves. But there is also supplement products on the market as well. Uh, those typically have between 50 and 60 grams of IgG. So where those come in well is if the calf sucks some but not not enough or the cow didn't have enough and you milked her out um, you could get a liter out of her you know, it's good to give that to the baby but then you're also going to have to provide a supplement product so just be careful when you're purchasing those bags uh, make sure you see this 100 grams of igg uh, or or 50 grams of igg and know what you're getting a supplement versus a replacement I have seen some less quality products, lesser quality products on the market, specifically in the U.S., and they try to trick you with that 100-gram number, and it'll say uh, colostrum replacer, uh, 100 grams of colostrum provided, So, and the rest is just filler. So they know that producers are looking for that 100-gram mark, and they're saying 100 grams of bovine colostrum, and that's not what we need we need 100 grams of IgG certified in order for us to get enough colostrum into those babies. 
That said, there certainly is literature out there showing that 100 grams is the absolute bare minimum and there is uh, some benefit to feeding even more, uh, up to 150 grams, 200 grams of IgG. Uh, I'm not advocating that calves need to get two bags of complete colostrum replacer, but just keep in mind in terms of what the literature says that there is, uh, that those calves could benefit from more colostrum as opposed to, to less. So now that we've talked about colostrum, let's talk about scours. So scours is, is just a, a lay term for neonatal diarrhea, and there's a variety of different pathogens that can cause neonatal diarrhea in baby calves. So we have the viruses, coronavirus, and rotavirus. They typically will take hold um, somewhere between the, the first week of life, so about the first five days, uh, all the way out to three to four weeks of age, uh, depending on the virus. So that's kind of the risk window. Uh, BVD is also a virus that can be a scours pathogen, but typically we don't see that in calves manifesting until they're a little bit older, five weeks or older. So those are the viral components. And then there's bacterial uh, pathogens that can cause diarrhea as well. So we have E. coli. Typically, E. coli will affect baby calves earlier in uh, in their life, so within the first week, uh, right from pretty much day zero, day one, uh, out to that first week. And then we also, in terms of the the bacteria that can cause scours. Salmonella is another significant pathogen. Usually that doesn't hit calves until about day 10. And then you can see that right through, right through calfhood. Clostridial perfringens, that is also another bacterial pathogen that can cause scours. Uh, usually we'll see that from day five all the way out to greater than week five. And then we have our protozoa. So we have the viruses, we have the bacterial causes, and we also have a protozoal cause. So coccidiosis, coccidia, myria, they are little protozoa that can cause very significant diarrhea. We don't see that often until day 21, uh, but there is some species of Amiria of the, of the, of the protozoa that can mature within 12 days, uh, the earliest maturing ones. So you can see coccidiosis a little bit earlier depending on the species that you're working with, but typically 21 days and greater is the magic number. And then the last protozoa of note is, is cryptosporidium. So crypto is is a protozoa that can affect those calves uh, fairly early on within the first week of life and can affect those calves, you know, usually anywhere out through week two, three, and four. Crypto is the famous one in vet school uh, or when we have vet students out on rotation and they're dealing with, with calves that have scours. If your vet student disappears like two days later after you you hook a calf on fluids, you're usually pretty confident that they came down with crypto. Uh, it's a pretty infectious disease. It only takes a few uh, of those protozoa to cause a clinical infection. And yeah, you'll get the, you'll get the, the, the human scours pretty good uh, for a few days. Great weight loss program. 
that's a great point with with a lot of these pathogens is they can be zoonotic uh, not all of them but some of them are zoonotic meaning that people can certainly get them so we do have to use strict biosecurity we have to make sure we're washing our hands that we're wearing gloves uh, especially when we're dealing with or potentially contaminating uh, people that are immunocompromised so the elderly the very young uh, people on chemo um, you know the chronically ill type people uh, they're more susceptible to contracting pathogens in general so we have to be very diligent in terms of our biosecurity so e coli can be zoonotic salmonella can be zoonotic uh, crypto can be zoonotic uh, so we have to exercise extreme caution when we're when we're dealing with with scouring calves so like all diseases, uh, it certainly is multifactorial. There's a number of risk factors and that, that can, can be causative. And there's also often multiple pathogens involved. We don't often see just a single scours pathogen uh, causing all the trouble. A lot of times we'll see a combination, so viral and crypto and, and so on. So just remember that it is a very complex disease process involving the, the pathogen, so how virulent the pathogen is, what type of pathogen we're dealing with. The calf, we're, we're worried about host immunity, their ability to uh, mount a proper immune response, how much colostrum did they get, and then also the environmental factors. So where are we calving? Um, are our calves out? What is our pair-out strategy? What is our overall biosecurity strategy or management strategy for preventing scours in general. And we'll talk a little bit more about that. But, you know, we really want to focus on improving management. We really want to focus on minimizing exposure. And, and through that, hopefully we are preventing clinical disease. So things like scours vaccinations, um, you know, they can help in some circumstances. And I certainly have clients that use them and have had um, great success with using scour vaccinations but in general scours is a disease of management so if we can make some management changes often we can mitigate our overall scours risk within our herd there's a lot of things that we can do for preventing scours uh, even pre-calving so ensuring that cows are in an adequate body condition score um, in Canada we use a five-point scale so having cows in that three to three point five out of five range uh, you know fleshy adequate nutrition cows uh, can go a long ways in terms of preventing scours uh, also making sure that those cows uh, have adequate minerals and vitamins uh, can can really help uh, also with making sure that we have healthy cows and thus uh, good quality colostrum like i noted before uh, pre-calving we can use vaccines to help uh, those vaccines are given pre-calving and what they're doing is they're boosting that uh, aminoglobulin, that IgG in the colostrum, and that's how they they work is through vaccinating the cow. We have a better um, we have a better array of exposure to these pathogens uh, in vaccine form, and that cow will mount an immune response against those pathogens in the vaccine, and she will dump those aminoglobulins into her colostrum pre-calving. 
So it, it is a supplement in terms of, of scour control, but management is always best. And when we're talking about environment and pre-calving scour prevention strategies, um, calving in favorable weather certainly can, can help. Uh, it allows us to reduce the need to confine those animals or intensively management and cold and wet conditions can certainly lend to to stress and impaired immunity so if i just got to pick the best calving strategy for the mitigation of scours that would be calving in may and june out on green grass where we can really spread out the risk of that pathogen contamination calving out on grass uh, definitely is one of the best management things that we can do but certainly it's not not an option in a lot of different herds for a lot of different reasons so we just have to learn to to work around that prior to calving it if at all possible it's important to not overwinter cattle on calving pastures so think about uh, cows getting put in their dry lots or put onto their feeding grounds uh, being fed there all winter shedding all kinds of pathogens and then we start calving in that area as well uh, that certainly can lead to a higher risk of of those calves coming across certain pathogens and and getting infected we can also do some pre-calving preventions uh, with calving our heifers out early and separate from the cows. Uh, heifers in general shed more pathogens versus cows, so they are super shedders. And calves born to heifers uh, typically have poor immunity as well. So if we can get those ones calved out first, those calves to heifers calved out first, when the overall pathogen burden is quite low, we can mitigate some scours issues as opposed to calving everybody at the same time and if we're able to through management it's also a great idea to try not to overcrowd your animals and there's some strategies we can do for that so one approach would be to actually make sure that we're preg testing and staging and then we can sort off the late calvers because we know we don't need to be watching them as closely and put them in a different uh, pasture altogether so it just decreases the overall stocking density of our calving grounds and we can also, from there, start thinking about some strategic uh, pasture management tools, um, essentially minimizing commingling between the, the age groups and limiting contamination. So I'll try to, I guess, describe some typical calving pasture management scenarios that we see. So one would be, especially when we need a barn because we're calving in colder weather, we would have our calving pasture and our barn close to that. And as calves are born, then we're putting them into a nurse pen. So we're pairing them out to a nurse pen. And then we have our turnout pasture. So calves are born in that, in that calving pasture. They get put onto the nurse pen, uh, make sure that those calves are pairing up and then we're put out uh, into that turnout pasture so everything's going good from that regard usually with for the first three weeks we don't see much in in terms of scours uh, but then all of a sudden we'll see some scours break in that nurse pen and if we keep pairing out into that nurse pen we're going to be exposing those new babies to a lot of uh, pathogens in the in the nurse pen and before we know it we're going to see scours also in our turnout pasture so it is 
very, very important when you're designing your your calving pasture systems to recognize that once calves are about three weeks of age or older, they're pretty much past the, the high level of risk for getting scours. So they have a really high risk uh, earlier on um, when they're when they're really really young, and then after that, uh, they develop a bit you know a bit better immune system. So the risk of scours also really isn't that high until we get into you know three or four weeks into calving season and that's when the risk of those calves getting sick is is a lot higher so when we're thinking about that that calves typically don't get sick within the first three weeks um, of calving season because there isn't a high pathogen load and then calves older than three weeks are less susceptible to getting infected, we can start implementing some different strategies uh, to segregate calves by age to minimize um, direct and indirect transmission of those pathogens from older to younger calves. So in an ideal situation, what we would want is to to calve cows out in a pasture and then after about two to three weeks, everybody that hasn't calved yet gets moved to a new pasture, a new fresh pasture. We calve those out for two or three weeks and then the ones that haven't calved get moved to a new pasture and then we calve them out for two or three weeks and then the ones that haven't calved get moved to a new pasture. So those ones are getting, you know, everybody's always calving on a fresh pasture for the first two or three weeks. And that is very representative of what's called the Sand Hills, um, the Sand Hills calving management system. So just really taking into account those, um, those parameters of when calves are at a higher risk. Once they're in that that four to six week age group, uh, that's when we can start moving and managing those groups together again as a whole. So we don't have to manage them in four separate pens for the rest of the winter, the rest of the calving season. Once they get old enough, then we can turn them all back together again uh, once those younger calves aren't as young anymore and we can manage them as a group again. So that's the Sandhills. The benefits of the Sandhills calving system is that um, calves two weeks of age are separated from the newborns. Uh, all the cows calve on clean grounds, and it's easier to move cows versus pairs. So we're moving just the cows that haven't calved yet onto new pastures as opposed to pairing out. So that can be good. Uh, the the cons to the Sandhills calving system is that it is it is certainly difficult to keep all the cows near the barn uh, when we're using or utilizing a barn uh, in some of the colder weather, and overall the Sandhills calving system is is difficult pretty difficult when we're dealing with large numbers. Now, knowing all those different things, there is if if that's not the the right route for you there is a lot of things we can do to use kind of like a modified Sandhills calving system with the same principles. So we can be calving out at a main barn and have multiple paro pastures. So everybody calves out in the same place, 
but as soon as they calve, they get paired out into pasture number one and uh, they get moved onto that pasture for the first two weeks and then we close that down and then the next wave of calves to be born get born near the barn and then we we pair them out into uh, a new a new pair of pasture then after two to three weeks we shut that down and then we go to the next one and the next one and that's a little trickier because we're moving pairs as opposed to moving individual cows but that said um, there's a lot of different things that we can do so when we're consulting in a in a our practice one thing that we'll do is we'll just pull uh, google image data of an individual farm and we look to see what we have to work with so we look at all the different calving facilities we look at all the pens and it gives us a really great uh, visual interpretation of how can we best uh, create a system of flow in terms of calving management that will mitigate overall disease transmission and hopefully scours so yeah there's there's a lot of creative ways that we can get around that it uh, is is not easy but with a little bit of a little bit of planning it can it can go certainly a very very long way when it comes to treating, so let's say we've done everything that we possibly can in terms of pre-calving and prevention, uh, when it comes to treating, it's very important to remember what type of pathogens cause scours because the majority of those pathogens are not bacteria and bacteria are the only ones that respond to antibiotics. So I think there's a lot of antibiotic usage in scouring cases that don't need to be used because viruses don't respond to to antibiotics and protozoa don't respond to typical antibiotics. Um, so we can limit a lot of the antibiotic usage and really focus on oral rehydration therapy. Uh, calf boluses that have, you know, some, like, say, a sulfamethazine in it or a neomycin, different antibiotics, uh, are, are really only good in very select cases where we have confirmed bacterial-causing scours. And uh, when we're just using it, them, those boluses indiscriminately for treating scours, we're probably conferring resistance, uh, both in our own herd and then also across the entire industry. So the, the absolute, uh, pillar of, of treating calf scours is oral rehydration therapy. So giving electrolytes, the amount to give electrolytes, I like to, to go through, um, just to teach producers a bit about what the overall deficit uh, of, of fluids there is in a typical calf based off of some clinical signs. So we'll talk about percent dehydration. So let's say today you drank enough water all day long, uh, you're 0% dehydrated, okay? Uh, let's say you drank half a case of Bud Light last night and you woke up in the morning and you're feeling a little down, you're probably like 2% dehydrated, okay? So as soon as a calf starts squirting uh, with diarrhea and is still bright and alert, still heads up, still running, still playing, still nursing, but is is full squirting, they're probably close to that 2% uh, dehydration rate. 
as that goes further and further down, uh, essentially the maximum is 14%. So 0% dehydrated, that's just us normally, and 14% dehydrated or greater equals death. And then we have the spectrum between the 0 and 14%. And we can judge that based off of the clinical signs of those calves. So between 0 and 4%, uh, we're going to have mildly mildly depressed calves. And if you're watching closely, you're also going to have a decreased urine output as well. So squirting and starting to get a little bit depressed, that, that 0 to 4%. Between 4 and 8%, what we are going to see is, is sunken eyes, we're going to see a pretty dry mouth and nose. Uh, we're also start going to start to see some some staggering, some skin tent. Uh, those calves are are getting close to to needing uh, IV therapy, but they're still standing. Okay, so that's kind of our metric. They're looking dehydrated, but they're still able to walk around depressed. Those calves we can treat with oral rehydration therapy with oral electrolytes. As soon as those calves go down, uh, both just recumbent on their chest, so in, unable to stand, uh, but still heads up, or if they're flat out, those calves are going to be between 8% and 14% dehydrated. Those ones need intravenous therapy. They need uh, to have a vet treat them uh, using either a combination of, of hypertonic bicarb solution and then relying on oral rehydration therapy from there or putting them on bags of fluids like some of you guys might have seen like an isotonic uh, saline solution or an LRS uh, solution to, to get those calves back and rehydrated. So the reason that I talk about percentages is that also equates uh, roughly to how much fluids a calf needs. So if a calf is 1% dehydrated, it needs an extra one liter of fluids in terms of oral rehydration. If it's 2%, we need two liters. If it's 4%, we need four liters throughout the day. If it's, if it's 8%, we need eight liters per day. So that's why we talk about the percentage of dehydration as it relates to clinical signs. And then that allows us to accurately identify how much uh, fluids is needed for our baby calves to, 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 go back to normal. Um, it is really difficult, let's say at six to eight percent to to get enough fluids into them through oral rehydration. So most of those those oral rehydration bags or powders or whatever you use are gonna mix with two liters of water. Uh, so two liters tube fed or bottle fed to those calves um, that's pretty easy to do uh, four liters not too bad tube that calf twice or, or offered an electrolyte bottle twice three times a day is a big ask that's a lot of work four times a day that's a lot of work as well but just so you guys know that's kind of the range and to reiterate, once a calf is down in on sternal, so recumbent in sternal, or is flat out, uh, those ones need vet attention. 
Now, the clinical signs aren't necessarily related to pure dehydration. A lot of the clinical signs that we see are related to acidosis, so a buildup of acid in the bloodstream, and through correcting that using hypertonic bicarb, um, using buffered uh, solutions like LRS, that will buffer the acid and make those calves feel better. So that's a lot of what we're doing. Uh, The oral electrolytes also have a buffering agent in them. So we're not only just correcting the dehydration, which is important, but even more importantly, we're correcting the acid buildup, this acidosis. So very important to remember there that that that's, that's how we're approaching it. That's why we're using those specific products is to combat the acidosis and not necessarily the dehydration. One question that I often get is, do I cut out milk feedings completely? And the answer is no, those calves still need calories. They need calories to live. They need calories to heal. So combine or alternate electrolyte feedings with milk feedings. So if a calf is 4% dehydrated and you need to give it four liters over the day, do a two liter feeding of the electrolytes and then a two liter feeding of milk and then a two liter feeding of electrolytes again and a two liter feeding of milk. And that will help keep those calves energy levels up. So oral rehydration therapy is paramount in how we treat those calves. There's also some add-ons or adjunct therapy that can be added when we're talking about treating calves with scours. Uh, One product that some of our producers use is a smectite clay product uh, called Platinum GI. Uh, What else is that called? I think in the States it might be called BioSponge. Essentially, this is a special clay that um, you can add three tablespoons to the oral electrolyte solution, and it helps um, bung those calves a little bit up, so retain water. And there's also some literature on the human side and on the equine side that it binds toxins as well, so enterotoxins from some of the those uh, those bacteria is uh, is a nice adjunct therapy when we have it. And then also administration of a non-steroidal anti-inflammatory, meloxicam being the the most common one. Once those calves are hydrated, we can give them non-steroidal anti-inflammatory. What that's going to do is have an anti-inflammatory effect in the gut. We decrease the inflammation in the gut and hopefully we decrease some of the water losses and, and make those calves feel better. Now, you'll note that I have not said anything about antibiotics in treating calf scours. But there are some cases when we do need to go with antibiotics. So uh, the logical first case is when we have a diagnosis of a bacterial scours in a herd uh, done by lab work. So when we go out and take a fecal sample of a calf that's broke with diarrhea, and then we send that off to a lab and we get a definitive result back and we get a susceptibility pattern based off of which antimicrobials uh, those calves, those pathogens will be susceptible to, then we can 
at that point, go ahead and give an antibiotic as per vet recommendation. The other time in scour cases when we're also going to potentially reach for antibiotics is if those calves are, you've done everything else right, and those calves are still running a fever. Uh, That can be an indication that there's a bacterial component as well, bacterial septicemia. And at that point, it would be... um, then prudent to consider moving an antibiotic into the treatment protocol uh, if if those calves are more depressed than they should be or or febrile with a with a temperature when we're talking about protozoal so if we see coccidiosis or even potentially crypto uh, one product that can be used uh, is told Tazerol. So this is the active ingredient in the, the brand name product, Baycox, just for reference. Uh, here in Alberta, there's several compounding pharmacies that will make a compounded Tazerol product. And that is an anti-coccidiosis drug, a single dose oral therapy for the treatment of coccidiosis. And then there's also some supportive literature, I'd say some mildly supportive literature out there that toltazerol, uh, especially in combination with the antibiotic called azithromycin. So toltazerol could potentially have a cryptosporidium um, treatment effect. So an anti- cryptosporidium drug. Now, this isn't on the label. This is not supported uh, to the fullest extent in the literature, but uh, there is uh, some in-lab data along with uh, some clinical trials in combination with, with azithromycin, like I said, that it could be effective in, the out- in an outbreak situation of cryptosporidium. When we've treated uh, or we're in the midst of treating, I just want to reiterate how important uh, hygiene is um, from passing those pathogens to humans, but also different calves. An example would be the the esophageal feeder bag or the tube um, or the bottle and nipple that we're using to feed these electrolytes to. We want to have a separate set altogether for sick calves and we want to have a separate set of bottles and tubes for giving that to healthy calves. You can imagine the worst thing in the world you could do is go out there uh, tubing calves all day with electrolytes in the midst of a scours outbreak, and then you take that dirty old tube, fill it with colostrum, and shove it down uh, the next calf's throat that just needed supplemental colostrum. You're going to inoculate them with whatever virus, bacteria, or protozoa that you're fighting against, and it's uh, yeah, it's going to be an uphill battle from there for sure. Huh. Is that everything I know about scours? I think it might be. Okay, guys. If you have any questions about scours prevention or potentially treatment or the pathogenesis, um, just reach out to me. My email is cody at codycrailman.com or you can slide into my DMs on Instagram or send me a Facebook message on my, my Cody Crowman Calvet Facebook page and I will absolutely love to talk to you guys and we can talk all about the poops.
So I appreciate you guys listening and um, I look forward to the next podcast. I don't know when it's going to be. Hopefully soon. I want to talk about pneumonia and calves, pre-branding and post-branding and also branding time, vaccination, branding time, uh, anti-inflammatory usage, implant strategies, fly control, and yeah, the gamut of branding time because that's coming up very fast as well. So I think that'll, that'll be the next one. Okay, that's it. See ya.